This podcast is brought to you by Benjamin, a workflow automation engine that allows advisors to focus on their clients rather than data management. Learn more at getbenjamin.com. Financial stress affects between 65 to 85% of people, yet nobody's talking about. Yet there's no countdown on social media or the nighttime news about how pervasive and how impactful it is to be financially stressed all the time. All the way from Calabasas, California, I have the pleasure of speaking to Alex Malkumian. Alex is a financial psychologist and author, a financial stress expert, and the founder of the Financial Psychology Center in California. Alex opens up about the learning curve and culture shock he went through when he came from the Soviet Union and started his life here in the United States. Just an incredible story that I'm super grateful Alex opened up and shared with us. Alex and I dive into the client's mind and trying to understand stress and shame and the inability of figuring out what to ask, how to ask it, and the uncertainty of knowing exactly what the clients mean when they are speaking. Such a large topic that we as advisors need to know because clients are fearful of asking the wrong thing and they don't really know what to ask and we have to help them with that. Alex and I also dive into financial literacy and the importance of financial psychology. This was an eye-opening conversation of diving into the psychology of our clients and ourselves. I learned so much, so let's jump in with Alex. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Dr. Alex Melkumian, welcome to Bridging the Gap. How are you doing, my friend? Thanks so much for taking time to join us on this podcast, man. How are you? I'm feeling fantastic. Thanks so much for having me. This is going to be super fun. We've had already some fun before the podcast getting up and running. We've had some technical difficulties, which is always the best, but it's part of the process. We've been staying calm because we've got, you know, a psychologist, a financial therapist on. We got to just stay calm. And that's what we've done. And I am, I'm super interested. I mean, you're calling from Calabasas. So just, I always like to ask, right? You always ask about traffic, you ask about weather. So what's the weather like, you know, in Calabasas? Uh, I mean, let's make like everybody jealous. 90 degrees at, no, it's actually 95 at about, about noon here. And we're waiting to, for it to heat up probably to 100 by about 5 p.m. So there it's you go. Just the heat wave, the heat wave. I oh, love yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's awesome, man. Well, I am, uh, like I said earlier, I am really stoked about talking with you because this is just a topic that I'm really interested in psychology, financial psychology, behavioral psychology. Like I was talking about before we got on the podcast, I just am super intrigued about how we don't, you know, understand our brains and listen to our brains. We, we make all these decisions based on our emotions, despite knowing how we are acting based on all the research and psychology. And I, I just love to dive into it. And I always ask everybody, right? So you, you know, you now are running the Financial Therapy Association. You've, you're writing a book. You've got everything involved with regards to financial therapy, financial psychology. How did you get here? I always want to know the journey to this point. And I always like to start that question or answer from my guest with saying, what did the 13-year-old Alex Melkumian want to do? Was it this? Yeah. Great question. So something unique about me that at 13, I was still living in a different country. So originally I'm from the Soviet Union. I was born and raised in Moscow, Russia. And at 13 or thereabout, I moved Moscow to LA. 
So very glamorous, right? Not so much. I didn't speak a word of English and had to really assimilate and adapt to American culture, learn the language, learn the customs, norms, and, and the rest. And obviously, if you could pick a more different or extreme culture, it would probably be the Soviet Union, right? <laughs> so yeah, 13-year-old Alex didn't know anything about money because he grew up in the Soviet Union, stood in lines because scarcity was a thing, a real thing. And money didn't matter because in a communist culture, it just, it's different rules apply in a way. And so immigrating to the United States had a lot of a big up, uh, upside in a learning curve if I may say it that way. And then the second piece to your question is that I, I delved into the empathic and clinical arts uh, and wanted to become a therapist. My journey took me to you know, studying psychology and I really never had any sort of idea about money and how it's impacting my life. I've never really sat there and thought, wow, money is such an important piece of my life. I just wanted to help people. And then what happened was you know, about 2007, I was really disillusioned with my profession because mental health professionals are big time under earners. And I just mm. thought, you know, I want to help people, but this is not the only way to do it. And I vouched to leave the profession and two of my friends and I opened a business that unfortunately didn't make it. It was not financially successful because of the particular business model. It was based on sponsorships and uh, <laughs> I don't have to finish the rest of that story. In 2007 and eight, uh, sponsorships were not necessarily something that companies were looking to do. And after the crash, I sort of reluctantly returned to psychology in general. And for me, even though it was one of the most painful experiences uh, that that particular business failed, it was the beginning of this journey that I went on, which is by the time I returned to clinical psychology, you know, my clients were starting to talk about money on my proverbial couch. And they were talking about, I'm foreclosing on, on my home and it's one of the most devastating things I've ever been through. You know, I'm losing a huge part of my portfolio. What do I do? The stress and overwhelming, the emotions are so triggering. I don't know what to do. And so the second half of that is, as a clinician, I kind of started to look around and I wanted to get some support for my fellow psychologists and therapists. And what I found was that not a lot of people were talking about it. Actually, nobody was really talking about it. And so I was really passionate about it. You know, a little self-disclosure, my, my wife at the time was also having her own journey with finances and a relationship with money. And, you know, together we started reading some of these, you know, what we call FinPop books like Dave Ramsey and uh, David Bach and Tony Robbins. And specifically Dave Ramsey, when I opened that book, The Millionaire Makeover, I really started seeing that what he's talking about, what he's writing about is applied psychology, right? Is applied behavior, behavioral finance which was not necessarily around at the time as a, as a formal profession. And so in my mind, I said, well, if it's, not, if it's not here, then why don't we build it? And I started to create some content and curriculum and courses and things like that. 
And then a friend of mine said, well, if you're doing all of this work, why not go back to school and get your doctorate and so on and so on. So that's really part of my journey. That's an incredible journey. I mean, when I always ask about the 13-year-old self, I mean, this is the first time I've heard the answer of immigration from the Soviet Union to the United States. I mean, at that point, it's just a matter of, hey, I just want an opportunity, right? And that's what you, and that's, that was what you were looking for at, at 13. And, you know, is anybody in your family within this industry or is it just something that you just grew passionate about as you started to say, I want to impact people and have a, have an impact on, on lives. And I think that this is the way that I can do it. Is that kind of where it came from, just an empathetic side, as opposed to seeing someone else that you knew or you looked up to that was in this, in this vertical? No, nobody in my family. So my mom was a music teacher. <laughs> I had uh, both of my grandparents were scientists uh, in the chemistry and physics fields. So some science, but not necessarily personal finance or economics. And funny enough, you reminded me of a story that, you know, I was a lost <laughs> kid, I guess, at uh, 18, 19 years old, as so many of us are, especially as an immigrant, you know. And I think I tried, I don't know, seven or eight different majors in college, right? You know, I majored in chemistry, I majored in culinary arts, I majored in like just a garden variety of different things. And one time I said to myself, okay, after one of those conversations with my parents, I said, you know, I'm going to take this all seriously and I'm going to start majoring in economics. And so I took my first economics class and it was like they were speaking a different language and I didn't like it and I left. <laughs> And in retrospect, is because they didn't speak a language that I understood, meaning that they didn't talk about personal examples. It was too much macro for me. And so actually, that's a huge lens that we utilize at Financial Psychology Center is the ability to communi communicate with our clients in the way that they understand. And some of my content actually uh, on social media, on LinkedIn and, and uh, Facebook and Instagram has been geared towards the four languages of money. Obviously, there's a practical language. There's the emotional language of money. There's also a cultural language of money. And then the last one is the spiritual language. Why this is important is because it's so germane to my personal experience. Because as a 13-year-old, I didn't speak you know, a word of English. And I remember several stories where I was out there hanging out after school and with some friends who spoke Russian and they went home. And then all of a sudden I kind of got lost and, and just didn't know how to get back home. And I just realized at that moment, I don't know how to ask how to get back home. I don't know how to ask what time it is. I don't know how to ask for how much the bus fare would be back home. And the level of stress and shame was just palpable. And what that means for me today is our clients feel very similarly when we're starting to talk about money and they don't understand what we're saying to them. That, what you just said resonated in it because I, I actually wrote about this in, in my book and I want to get to your new book as well, is this idea of stress and shame. That example you used of the inability to know what to ask how to ask it, and even like what would like if if someone responded to you, you probably wouldn't know what they meant. Like the uncertainty of all that—that that is, and I, and this is exactly where you were going—is that 
all of that is exactly what everybody goes through that's not in the profession of financial advising or wealth management is that people come in and they just they feel shame because they think that they should know about it, but they don't. They don't understand it. They don't know the questions to ask. So they feel stress about it. And like you can avoid that and avoid that for a long period of time by just continuing to go and do and be like, oh, I'll talk about it later. And that's what the majority of people do. And so my question to you, because you talk a lot about financial literacy and the impact that that has on financial psychology, how do we help people get over that? How do we help to move them, right? You had to learn the language and go through training to get there. How do we help people get over that, especially in a situation where it's not as required necessarily as language would be in this country, right, where you were in your life? Because some people are like, I just don't care about that. I don't need to do it, but they should do it, uh, but they may not be motivated to do that. So how do we motivate them and how do we then ultimately help them overcome those stresses and that shame? that comes on the financial side that people feel every day? Well, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, the way I usually frame it for our clients is there's the financial literacy piece, which is basically, in my opinion, half of the equation. And the other half of the equation is financial psychology. And when you have financial literacy plus financial psychology altogether, that equates to financial wellness mm. and financial health. So where we came from as a society, we came from a money taboo. We came from not really talking about money. And if you weren't naturally good or had an inclination for the practical and delving into economics and, and, and things like that, you kind of missed the boat, right? So now as a society, we're inching towards championing more and more financial literacy. And financial literacy is the what we do with money. So the, the, thing, the five things that you can do with money, earn, save, spend, invest, and give. And this is what I talk about in my book, that earning is the most important one of all of them because you can't, do, you can't save and you can't spend without earning. So financial literacy itself is a skill set of and, and the knowledge of what to do with money. But the financial psychology piece is the context of why we're doing it, is the motivation behind what we do, what we do with money. It's the, what is applicable now versus what, why is this not applicable? Not every situation is the same. And that's why I have a saying that personal finance is personal because what, would may, what may be the right thing to do for you is not the right thing to do for me. But even more so, the thing that would be right to do for me right now may not be the right thing to, for me to do a year from now or five years from now. There's also like a lifespan conversation, right? If we're dealing with a young millennial and they're just launching from their parents, there's a very different conversation than we're having with our you know, geriatric millennials who already have kids in the family. And maybe they've missed the boat a little bit and, and they didn't start investing into their 401ks and, and, and their retirement early on enough. So now they're playing catch up and there's a bit of FOMO that's involved in it. So the solution can be different for the same person depending on the circumstances. And that's why financial psychology is so important. 
So that's intriguing, right? Because you, I love that idea of like what you can do with your money, earn, save, you know, invest, spend, give. And then the why you do it. And the why is different for everybody. But the why today is kind of what you're saying is different than the why tomorrow. And I think that that leads really well into your into the book, your, your new book, Financial Psychology, Restoring Financial Wellness in a Post-COVID Economy. Uh, buy it everywhere books are sold. And I think it's super interesting because, you know, that we talk about the why in, in the post-COVID economy, the financial stress and restoring financial wellness is so critical, but it's hard and difficult. And the why you're doing certain things financially is different probably today than it was pre-COVID because the world and the experiences have changed. And so I'm curious in your mind and what you found in, in your research in the book is how what are what are ways to succeed and 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 prosper in this new reality that we're in when you know dealing with our financial psychology side was so difficult in the first place and now we throw this on it's like it just seems that it's like you're adding one in layer of difficulty to something that was already very difficult for people to handle great question so i think the book is really just shining a light on the importance of financial psychology it's, it's a conversation starter for a call to action for starting to look at our beliefs and our thoughts and our emotions around money, something that we oftentimes, as you said, we overlook. And the other piece of the book that's, you know, probably the, the predominant conversation in the book is, you know, financial stress. So financial stress as I see it, is an epidemic in our society that really no one is talking about. We kind of chatted about that sort of before we uh, started recording. And, and out of that, you know, financial therapy and also financial psychology in itself is a burgeoning field that has risen out of the need to deal with the financial stress. And as a clinician and as a psychologist, I look at financial stress as an underdiagnosed and undertreated issue by both mental health professionals as well as financial professionals. And what's been happening recently is that finally there's financial professionals and mental health therapists have been dealing with the clients overbearing emotions, but there has also been a bridging between the two and a collaboration between financial and mental health professionals to address financial stress and that mental health epidemic. So, you know, we can talk about some statistics we can first start with the American Psychological Association, who's done a Stress in America survey since 2008. And every year, except for two years, money has been the number one stressor for most Americans since 2008. The two years that it was sort of offset was 2016 by the, by the election of that time. And then in 2020, obviously, the pandemic and the ensuing fluctuation of the economy, which obviously <laughs> has so much to do with finances, right, has trumped the money as the number one stressor. And so on the other side, the NEFE, which is a National Endowment for Financial Education, they did their own survey in, 2000, in 2021, and they found that 84% of Americans are reportedly feeling financially stressed. I mean, these numbers are not surprising, I think, right, to me, to you, and to your audience. 
And what are some of the things that people, Americans, normal Americans are worried about? Job security, having enough for retirement, you know, income fluctuations, debt repayment, student loan uh, repayment, all the things that are constantly discussed in the social media and the news. And so one of the frameworks that I utilize for myself and my clients is when we look at the, the data, the statistics, what is the what are the numbers tell us? What story are the numbers telling us? And what I started looking at is, well, if we conceptualize financial stress as a chronic condition, right? Because it's pervasive. All of us are constantly inundated with feeling stressed and worried about money. Prior to 2008, even I'm sure, right? <laughs> um, so if we compare financial stress as a chronic condition to other chronic conditions, what would that look like? So, and I compiled a list from my research. And what, what happened was that we can see that high blood pressure affects 58% of seniors. High cholesterol affects 47% of seniors. Arthritis, 31%. Coronary heart disease, 29%. So on and so on and so on. And even when we are talking about the big COVID, right? COVID affected 60% of our population. And what that means to me is that financial stress affects between 65 to 85% of people, yet nobody's talking about. Yet there's no countdown on social media or the nighttime news about how pervasive and how impactful it is to be financially stressed all the time. You know, the thing that you mentioned there that I, I, there's a few areas I want to go by is, is that you list off all those medical challenges that people go through and like the top four, take out what you mentioned about COVID. I don't want to get on, on that tangent, but is those are all due to stress. They, they have a higher likelihood for individuals that have stress. So they are, they are the outcome of the true root cause of what is causing that. And we saw we try to treat them for, for a different issue when the real issue and the root of it is likely financial stress. The comorbidity is right there. And you're so on point for picking that up. Absolutely. And on the, on the mental health side, if we look at percentages of depression and anxiety, which are the most common diagnoses, uh, I think depression is at maybe 30% and anxiety maybe a little bit higher, but not much. So you see how these numbers are there, but there's some sort of a disconnect. So then let's dig deeper on this and, and, and go further on this side of it, right? So stress is causing true medical issues, high blood pressure, heart disease, all that type of stuff that's caused by stress. There's a lot of reasons why people are more stressed today than they were 30 years ago. We have better medicine that can deal with it, but there's a lot of, I mean, you're access to information. There's a comparing issues. Like you're always judging yourself against others. Money is now a bigger stressor than ever before. And there's a lot of interesting things in the psychology of money, the book by Morgan Housel that talks about a lot of this stuff too, is that the question then gets to what are ways that people can help better their financial stress or alleviate some of it? You're never going to have it all go away, unfortunately, I don't think. But how do we lessen it so that we can lessen these other ancillary issues that happen from stress? I'm curious on that side. 
beautiful question. And then we go right back into financial psychology. And remember how we talked about that, that simple equation. You know, financial professionals, their equation is financial literacy equals financial wellness, which from a, a psycho- psychological point of view is not correct. Again, it's financial literacy plus financial psychology equals financial wellness. So what that means is that we not only have to have a practical strategy for mitigating financial stress, but an emotional strategy, a psychological and a cognitive strategy. So we can talk about financial stress and planning sort of ad infinitum, but unless we're also tapping into and containing some of these negative emotions, we're sort of spinning our wheels because there's always going to be something to worry about. There's always going to be, we're, we're going to be stressed about being stressed. And actually, research has found that it's not the actual fear of, you know, not having enough money. It's <laughs> fear of worrying about it that perpetuates the, the anticipation, the anticipatory anxiety that sort of fuels that, that overwhelming, overburdening emotional experience. To that point, real quick, to that point, all those people that talk about how we always worry about so much more that tends, if we were to look at how much we worry about things that don't end up happening, it's ridiculous, right? I mean, it's just, and an, an, I know that Benjamin Franklin had an amazing quote on it, but that's the whole idea. Why are we worrying about all this stuff? But go on. I think it's so interesting. Yeah. Keep going. I think the quote goes something like, luckily, most of the things that we worried about never, never happened. Fair enough. That's, that's like it. That, right? There you go. So, and when we start to strategize around having an emotional budget, is what I call it, how do we budget our emotions? Can we look at some of the emotions that, that we experience as healthy and some of them as unhealthy? Some emotions are extremely taxing on the body. Some of the really negative emotions like shame and guilt and resentment. And sort of on the other side of the spectrum, there are positive emotions that are equally blinding and you know, sort of crippling. When we fall in love with the idea of buying a particular stock. And then all of a sudden, we don't see objectively and, and we just want to be successful at all costs. And we didn't see warning signs within that. So that positive emotion can also be equally detrimental. And I was perusing your channel before I logged on a couple of days ago. You had a video about one of my favorite books, It Takes What It Takes by uh, Trevor Moab incredible book for those of you who haven't read it. And uh, one of the amazing concepts that he talked about in that book is emotional neutrality, something that psychologists have been talking about. There's, you know, another term for it called equanimity, where we want to kind of get to a place of emotional balance, emotional neutrality, where it's not our emotional brain, the limbic system, the amygdala, that's making a decision, but it's our logical mind. And it doesn't mean that, you know, we're taking them, the emotions out of our money, which is another slogan that I oftentimes hear from, from financial professionals, but it's being informed by emotions because our emotions are motivating. But at the time of the making the financial decision, 
it's not the emotion that's making the financial decision. It's our logical mind or actually our wise mind. And so sometimes when we get into making a decision and we feel stressed and we feel overwhelmed, what happens is that there's that financial inner critic. And the inner critic says, oh, you, you've made 10 bad choices in a row and you better get this one right. And so it creates this huge pressure, even more stress than there has to be. And with that increased pressure, we get into that fight or flight mode. It's a natural reaction to any stressor. And so then now we're looking at money as something that's going to be painful. That's, that we should avoid or, you know, we should fight it or we should run away or, you know, whatever our internal uh, neurological circuits are telling us. And what happens is that there's something called the amygdala hijack. The amygdala, again, is the emotional part of our brain. And it basically hijacks our whole system. And it goes, oh, we got to buy that, you know, one stock because that's our way out. Or I'm just going to sell my house now before I can, you know, get into deep waters or I'm upside down and it's the wrong decision. You're spot on, right? And it's also aligns with a lot of the work that, that Daniel Kahneman has done as well with system one and system two, right? Your system one yes. is what acts really fast. Your system two is your logical thinking part. And it's hard to use the system two because it takes so long, but it's more, it's more difficult because system one, to your point, they made the hijacks your your decision making so you make these quick decisions because you feel you have to make them quick and that's where your system one is all emotional as not as opposed to thoughtful and i'm curious if there's any ways for people from your research that they can help to overcome that like what are the maybe one or two ways that people can help to hijack back their amygdala right let the you know calm that down are there any any things that you've seen work with with people you've talked to or research you've done Absolutely. So first and foremost, it's the understanding that, you know, this framework of of even understanding what the fight or flight process is, what the amygdala hijack is. Now our clients can see where am I at in this process? Am I actually, you know, going through an amygdala hijack right now? Am I in a fight or flight? Am I fighting right now? And this is, was apparent at the beginning of the pandemic. Some people were so scared financially, physically, emotionally that they just retreated. And that's what, what, that's what their mind and body needed to sort of recover and recoup, right? And there were others that were in their flight mode <laughs> and they were the ones on LinkedIn, you know, screaming from the top of the mountain saying, I'm not going to let this take me out, especially in the industries that were decimated by uh, COVID hospitality industry, events, businesses, the restaurant businesses, so many different areas uh, and professions that were, you know, really impacted by COVID. And so those people were sort of full on <laughs> in their fight mode. And it was an, an amazing thing to observe from the side. Here are two examples of that stress response right then and there in front of their eyes. And so now, what is it, two years later almost, a little bit more, we are seeing that emotional response subside a little bit. Can that psychoeducation, can that knowledge, psychological knowledge, improve our response can we be 
responsive and not reactive. And we're going to go to another quote by Viktor Frankl. It's the space between stimulus and response where we have our power and control. And if we're able to create more and more of that distance and put a pause in between, that's where we get our power and control back. That we're not making an emotional, reactive decision at that point. So the, when you're asking about research, I love Susan David, who is a Harvard psychologist. She coined the phrase emotional agility. And what she talks about is labeling our emotions as a superpower. So what we know is that financial stress becomes this label. And we walk around thinking, I'm so stressed. I'm stressed about this. I'm stressed about that. So this label is just something that we sort of use to not really look deeper, unfortunately, into what's actually happening. And the second term that she utilizes a lot is emotional granularity. It's a fancy term for breaking down the financial stress into smaller parts, into smaller granules. And the difference is, is that if I'm stressed about losing my job and being a, you know, a better employee, better performer or better business owner, it's very different than, for instance, being ashamed uh, about not being able to buy Christmas gifts for my kids. Maybe it's not even, it, it's my, my son wanted a PS5, but I can only get him you know, a Nintendo Switch or something like that. That's the, <laughs> that's the modern day sort of shame cycle, right? But what happens is that when we actually look at what the underlying emotion is, whether it's shame or it's, uh, on the other hand, it's probably something like my pride was hurt that I'm getting fired or something like that. The strategy to work towards improvement is completely different. Right. As an employee, I would double down on, you know, I don't know, being more punctual, returning all of my projects on time, maximizing my outcomes. On the family side, the shame is maybe understanding that maybe my son, yeah, he wants a PS5, but it's really about my relationship <laughs> with my son. And it's actually he's, you know, wanting time with me instead of, yeah, the PS5 would be great. But he's seeking, you know, a connection with me. And maybe that, you know, Nintendo Switch would be fine as long as we play it together. I love that. I love that. I mean, I could have this conversation because, I mean, your knowledge and your information is so incredible. I mean, I could have it forever, but I want to let you get back to your day. But I, I want to wrap up with asking you two questions. But before I get there, I think that a quote that you have I think it's on your bio of LinkedIn is where I found it is you mentioned as athletes train with singularity of focus to excel in their field, they often experience stress in other areas of their lives, such as finances. This financial stress can unknowingly impact performance and interfere with their goal setting and training. These are professionals that focus solely on one skill inside one sport, and they put so much time and effort into it, yet financial stress can impact that. I mean, just think about for us as professionals, right? How hard it is. I'm not saying that our professional jobs aren't difficult, but being a professional athlete is extremely difficult as well. And it's, it takes extreme focus and there's extreme pressure 
because especially now because of the money that's in that game. And there's pressure on all of us. But the impact of not controlling your financial stress is real. And as much as they focus just solely and literally on one thing, this is able to impact. And I think it just shows, I love that quote, because I think it just shows how much of a necessity it is for individuals to control your stress. And as you mentioned, the ability of giving time between the the action and the stressor, the, whatever impacted it, is so key. Give it time to maintain that stress because if not, it's going to impact you in your professional life no matter how focused you are because I think that athletes are some of the most focused individuals there are and they're still getting impacted by financial stress. So I love that quote, man. I, I think that you know that's just an awesome, awesome thought. So before I let you go, I want to ask you my two questions I always ask everybody. First off is I always like to learn. These conversations are about learning I can't wait to read your book, Financial Psychology, Restoring Financial Wellness in a Post-COVID Economy. But I always like to learn about other books that my guests are reading because I like to learn from what they're reading. So what's one other book outside of your own that, that you'd recommend people reading? So one book you already mentioned earlier in the podcast, and it's uh, Psychology of Money by uh, Morgan So I mean, an incredible book. And I think most financial professionals are, are well aware of it. But another book that really coincides, not necessarily finances, but just living in modern day world and uh, performance and athletics is a book called Winning by Tim Grover. His first book called Relentless was focused on his work with Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant and the likes of those kind of athletes. But then he wrote a second book called Winning. And that focuses on entrepreneurs and business people. So an incredible book there as well. I love it. I and of love course, it. this book here. A, yeah, of course, <laughs> you got to go out and get it. That's what we're going to talk right. about here in a second. Now, the last piece that I always ask everybody is, what is one piece? What, I always get this from the Barron's conferences. I love how they ask their guests about actionable takeaways, right? So I would love to know, what you, what is one piece of actionable advice that you think people should take away from our conversation here today? Hmm. I think it kind of goes back to a quote that I kind of have been utilizing for quite a bit. And it's, if you're solely focusing on the financial part of financial stress, you're missing the point. And it goes along with a, a second quote, which is, it's not the money that's the issue. It's how we relate to the money that's the issue. So, when we have to look at stress as its own thing and, and have strategies and, and an, an emotional budget and a way to mitigate the stress part along with the practical part, the financial part. And that's what we talked about earlier today. I love that. I love that. Alex Melkumian, you are the man, dude. I love everything you're doing. I love your insight, the value you're bringing to just individuals. You're making an impact and it's so great. And as I mentioned, I mean, everybody needs to go out and, and get your book, The Financial Psychology, Restoring Financial Wellness in a Post-COVID Economy. Once they get that, I'm sure even, even when they just listen to this podcast, they want to continue to follow you and be in touch with you. So what are ways that our listeners can continue to follow everything you're doing, stay in touch, and continue to gain knowledge from everything that you're researching and putting out? Sure. So my website is financialpsychologycenter.com. And I'm also available on social media, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Financial Psychology Center. You are the man. 
Alex, Mel, so Kumian, you. you are the man. Thanks so much for spending time with us here on Bridge of the Gap. Stay well, be well, and I can't wait to watch everything you do and impact in the world. Thanks, man. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 